Welcome to Matthew's World of Wine and Drink, an educational podcast helping wine students and wine enthusiasts alike to learn about all the wines of the world. I'm Matthew Gorn and I'm a WCT Certified Educator and in this podcast I explore different wine regions and different grape varieties and also interview producers from all around the world to explore the vast world of wine. In this episode, I interview Drew Perry of Simpson Family Estates, who are based in Michigan. And we're going to talk about the wines of Michigan, maybe not a state that's on everyone's radar, but which has developed quite a lot in the last few years. And it was quite exciting to talk to him and to taste some of the wines. So here we go. Well, can you um, begin just by introducing yourself, uh, Drew Perry, um, who you are, what you do? Yeah, sure. Drew Perry, I am the Director of Winemaking for Simpson Family Estates. So that that's sort of an umbrella for a few of our brands. We have our original winery, which is Good Harbor Vineyards, and then we have also Aurora Cellars. So there's a, there's a few other wineries underneath us, and it you know, just gives us a chance to grow, but it's all a foundation built around the Simpson family here, which established the winery in 1980. It's, it's been a long time coming. Um, I have been doing this for, this will be going on 20 years now. So um, I actually went to school at Michigan State University where they had a program for viticulture and enology there but only for a few years. They had it for less than eight years, the actual program itself. As far as I know, I'm the only one to actually finish both viticulture and analogy there. So both a source of pride and a weird fact. I've been up here since up in the uh, Leelanau area. So you'd have to look at a map to really understand what that is. You know, we do the old hand trick. So we're, we're basically doing this. We're, we're right here in terms of the location in the state. I've been doing this up here since, moved up here in 2006. Right out of college, I went out to Napa, um, was out at Pine Ridge Winery, just to kind of cut my teeth to a little bit bigger place, rather than, it was all research before then. So after that, yeah, I, I came up here just because I knew enough about the industry and where it might be going, that you know it, it, it actually still appealed to me. And I didn't want to get swallowed up by the giant California industry. In all honesty, I, I felt like I could have a bigger impact somewhere that's growing than, you know, something that's already well established. And that's kind of how things started and things have evolved since in the last, I mean, yeah, this, I've done, I've had 19 harvests here, so it's going. Tell me about the uh, geography and climate of Michigan. It's it's very unique in that a lot of people like to point to the whole 45th parallel aspect, whether it's, you know, if you look at some of the areas around the world there on the 45th parallel, there are some amazing regions, whether you're looking at Willamette or some areas in France that, you know, are on similar parallels, but obviously we are all dramatically different. We don't have a jet stream or, you know, any sort of a Gulf stream monitoring or making our climate just very even keeled our advantage here is that giant lake we're right off of which might as well be a small ocean uh, without all the warm streams and currents going through it but it's it's a really unique situation where if you go just a few miles too far inland you can't grow grapes uh, you could grow some juice grapes maybe 
but for the most part, you're pretty much out of luck. Uh, this whole area actually started as an ag area. So we're, we're originally known for cherries up here. That's why I mean, people refer to this as sort of like a cherry capital. But the one nice thing we've learned is that, you know, if you can grow cherries, you can pretty much grow just about anything. Just in terms of when we're talking about bud break and, and ripening potential. But it's, it's a very limited, small region in which we can do sort of more of the traditional just vanilla varieties and, and things that people usually think about when they're thinking more classic wines. Uh, one thing we've had to get away from and try to get away from over the last few years has been hybrids, which has been one of those things that this industry kind of crutched on for a little while until they really started refining and understanding both the soils, the microclimates, and everywhere that we can actually plant and have successful, you know, ripe grapes. It's, it's a small industry, though. I want to say we're probably ninth in the U.S. in terms of size. Still growing, though, quite a bit. This area up here in northwest Michigan, we have another major growing region, which would be southwest Michigan. Um, northwest Michigan is really unique just for the soils and the climate. Uh, the soils, it's, it's a whole hodgepodge of glacially deposited material and, and sand. So, I mean, we are right off of a national lake shore, which is known for its sand dunes. And so we have all of these just hills and landscapes that allow us to really pick and choose our, our sites very specifically. Uh, we don't have a lot of just flat land where you can just grow endless quantities and, you know, in endless rows. We have to really kind of work with our geography. It's both an advantage and a disadvantage to, to some extent, uh, but it's really what allows us to do it. Um, if you look at actually our little, our little spot where we are in our peninsula, I always tell people that kind of one of the craziest things is when you look at temperature variation, the way the air moves through this peninsula, as I understand the, the actual variation between Traverse City, which is at the base of our peninsula, and Lansing, the capital, which is you know three and a half miles to the south and dead center, is less than the variation of temperatures just within our peninsula. So you have this whole spance that's pretty stable, but within our peninsula, coming right off the lake, all the variations in temperatures, and then the way the air flows kind of through all of our glacially deposited hills, we can have a 20 degree variance within a mile, uh, if not greater. So that's that really kind of hammers home the crucial point that we have to pick our sites correctly, but it, it allows us to do things you can't do in most places. Um, you know, I mean, this area itself is actually almost more known as a tourist region, or I would say wasn't known as a tourist region. That's kind of like our, our next big challenge is, is getting past that point, starting to become more of a more of a, a region that's known for you know growing wine and less of a, a region that's just a tourist region with a wine problem, which is kind of how it's sometimes viewed. So that's I don't know, I'd say that's us in a nutshell. What does the growing season look like? How does it develop? Short and intense. Um, <laughs> Uh, the one thing we have that, that is both an advantage and disadvantage is the, you know, where we are, we're located right off of a 
fairly shallow harbor with some really deep drop-offs. It helps to really moderate the temperature where we are. It helps to actually delay the spring break. So we get a little bit later bud break. So we usually miss the frost unless there's some major event that we can't avoid. And so we get a little bit of a, a late start in the spring. And then we're usually pretty slow going until, you know, August things really kick in and we really start developing in terms of fruit. But yeah, our season ends at that first frost or basically once we get everything off. So we're looking at usually the first week of November, we're done. We're starting our harvest, uh, generally speaking, the last week of September. So we have a sort of like a 30 day average, really tight window of harvest and just kind of intense work. And then we're, we're working that whole time up to that point to try to get things as bright as we can. And just honestly, accepting that we can do certain things and that we can't do others. Um, trying not to go too outside our wheelhouse of what we've learned we can successfully ripen within that. How many wineries are there in your area? I want to say it's upper 40s now. It's been a while since I've gone around to all of them. Um, yeah, it's, uh, it's grown quite a bit. It's one of those things where, you know, when I first got into this industry, there was really, I was coming in as sort of that, would say third generation of, of winemaker in this region and things were still relatively small back in the early 2000s and then things started growing there's obviously a lull during a little bit of a you know, decline in the economy and then there's been a an explosion the last few years so it's it's gotten it's gotten really big um you know people see the value in ag the other thing is our area um is that it's predominantly it predominantly has been cherries and cherries have lost a ton of value um basically in the market just they don't control the prices worldwide but that land is hugely valuable and everyone here wants to keep it in ag so there's been a, a real push to when possible replant these cherry orchards into grapes so it's it's helped our growth quite a bit. That's what happened in Sonoma County. All the apple orchards became uh, vineyards. So maybe mm -hmm. <laughs> that's the future. Yep. Um, so yep. Let's talk about great mm -hmm. varieties. I have four wines open, which I want to try as I talk to you. Um, I have Sauvignon Blanc, Pinot Blanc, and uh, Veltliner, as well as the um, Blaufrankisch. Four quite different grape varieties, and um, I tried some others as well. So there's quite a few grape varieties planted. Should we start with the Pinot Blanc? And you can just uh, talk about that. Yeah, Pinot Blanc in general, it does really well in this area. It highlights sort of the strength of Pinot Blanc and highlights the strength of this region, which is the acidity. Um, one thing I've always found Pinot Blanc working in with all these years is it needs a little bit of assistance in terms of depth. So we, generally speaking, anytime I'm planting a Pinot Blanc vineyard, I always make sure to plant around 15 to 20% Osawa in with that in order to kind of help broaden it out a little bit. Chances are I'm not pronouncing that the same way everyone else does, but let's just, it's one of those ones where you just pronounce fast and you don't overcommit and you should be fine. It's, uh, it, it's, it's, uh, it's a great variety for just sort of adding depth to what can be a one note variety. It's, it's, a uh, it's a variety that, while not in the aromatic kind of column, it, it really has a lot of things that, that work well 
for us. And it can go in different directions, whether we want it to just be dry or if we want it actually to take it bubbly. It's a, it's a diverse variety, but it's one of those ones that I think will be, you know, at, we have one of our facilities where it's kind of taken place of Pinot Grigio and sort of that foundational kind of crowd-pleasing entry-level wine that everyone can understand and isn't going to be too abstract. Yeah, I, I was working at a winery for a long time that we started to get our name known for Pinot Blanc. And it was one of those ones where all of a sudden we started seeing more and more people planting it. We have another variety, Gewürztraminer, that's picked up hugely in this area. That is funny, it doesn't sell as well, but it's one of those ones that people were doing really well with it early on. And then you kind of saw people jump on that trend. And then all of a sudden the area is just loaded with it. Pinot Blanc, to some extent, is kind of like that, where people sort of got really excited about it. And after about 10 years, you just saw a ton of it. I think Gruner Veltliner is actually probably the next one we're going to see like that, where people got excited about it a few years ago, and everyone went nuts with it. So I think we're going to be a flooded Gruner market soon. Okay, we'll taste that one in a second. Um, but I'm getting some definite overlaps with Alsace. Is that a obvious connection or a, um yeah i mean I, I you know it's one of those things that you want to sort of prime people's brains to think even though we could never be that um stylistically that's more an attempt to give a little more breadth and depth to pinot blanc um to keep it just from being kind of a razor thin line um i feel like it needs a little bit of darkness and a little bit of fleshiness in order to really uh, appeal to a broader audience and get more people kind of interested and, and introspective. It's, um, yeah, it's a variety that it's not ever going to be obvious. So it needs to be, I don't know, not, not too austere to the point that really only a few people could ever drink it. There's a really nice um, earthiness to the wine, which reminds me perhaps more of a German Weissburgunder or Pinot Blanc than Alsace. Yeah, I mean, we do a little bit of light lees contact, but pretty much everything is just real passive, just letting it sort of sit on that blanket for, you know, upwards of six months before we're really moving it along. Let's move to Sauvignon Blanc then, more of a Loire variety. Tell me about this one. Sauvignon Blanc has been sort of, uh, it's been one of those varieties that I've both been scared to death of and really excited about. Um, I started working with it back in 2008 and it was on very, very small quantities. And it was one of those varieties that people did not understand here that everyone was just scared to even plant. The overriding thought was you can't grow Sauvignon Blanc here. It will die. Um, and it will not ripen. And so that's one of those things we kind of had to get past that hurdle and actually find out for ourselves. Okay. Is that actually true? Once we found good sites for it, we started really working with it and finding out the next challenge is winemaking because it's so unique in terms of its aromatics. You're looking at a, a wine based around, you know, crazy aromatics that we don't have in our other wines. You know, this is not a, a terpene-based wine. It's a thiol-based wine. So it's got a completely different family of aromatics, which kind of forced us to relearn how to draw that stuff out. So... For the most part, when we're looking at something like that, um, you know, our, our our hope is basically we can sort of warm up to those basically grassier, um, more citrusy, grassy 
noted Sauvignon Blancs, because in all reality, that's always going to be present, will never ripen out the green in Sauvignon Blanc, uh, just given our climate. Uh, we don't have the length of season to really do that. So if we can sort of embrace that style, um, where we're not afraid of a little bit of a, a green line and just kind of in, in making that a, a quirky little characteristic, um, then it's not going to work. But, you know, so far we've enjoyed playing around and just trying to really find and find what works for us, uh, hone in the style that'll work for us and something we can do consistently. It's It's been a variety that we planted a few acres and we're now seeing it as a potential across a lot of wineries to continue to grow and actually possibly reach the broadest audience and biggest audience in terms of of white wines and um, do you use any skin contacts before fermentation yeah we're we're going a minimum of 12 hours um the last one was 14 hours so it's it's 14 hours just basically at about 40 degrees and then we're, we're pressing off and just trying to play with with various yeasts and fermentation techniques that are going to maximize that expression and sort of not really be afraid of it but rather lean into it and just say you know you're, you're going to embrace the fact that it's it's lean and it's going to have a, a green line but that's going to come with a lot of really interesting characteristics too. so you keep saying being afraid of sauvignon blanc oh it's scary it can go wrong so easily it's so another variety we do a lot of is Cabernet Franc in this region. And that's been for a long time. And it took our growers in our region, I would say at least 20 years to figure out how to grow it um, until we could finally start dialing down the screaming bell pepper. You know, the, just another variety that's just raging in methoxypyrazine, which can be interesting unless it ends up presenting like gazpacho where you just have this cold tomato soup with bell pepper. And once we finally realized what you need to do in order to ripen that out, it, it made, we made a huge turn. And that was my fear with Sauvignon Blanc was that we were going to go through those awkward growth phases of not understanding how to ripen that green to a point that it's pleasant versus offensive. And then once you get past that point, there's the winemaking side, which is being that other family predominantly of aromatics, it daily wanders from cat pee to pleasant gooseberry and just back and forth in the cellar. So while it's fermenting, you are just sort of trying not to overreact and just understand this is just natural. It's going where it needs to go. And in the end, you're hoping it's going to kind of turn into sort of a, a, like a, a baked, like almost like a baked kiwi and then have these kind of really interesting characteristics. But yeah, for me, it's one of those things as, as a bit of a neurotic control freak. I, it drives me nuts because it's one of those things I always want to do something about it and I always want to control it and force it into the direction I want it to, but you only have so much control. Uh, especially with Sauvignon Blanc. It's funny because Sauvignon Blanc has this reputation of being quite obvious, and yet when, when any winemaker starts talking about it, the, it's clearly not an obvious grape variety. No, no, no. There's, I mean, there's there's a lot. There, I would say it's one of those things that once you're comfortable with it, 
it's not overly difficult, but I feel like when you first start getting into it for those first 10 years, you start to learn that there's more that can go wrong easily than can go right. Uh, but once you really find your sweet spot and something that's a little more predictable, you start understanding the vineyard you're working with, then you can start marching forward comfortably. And so do you have to control the vigor to get the grapes right? Um, I thought so until this last year, you know, we were, we were trying to, we were doing, you know, whether it's doing tricks, like we have a few, uh, blocks that are grown and actually the, the rows are running east, west, where we're dropping fruit on the north side, um, just because they were always lagging behind. Um, and we found that to be kind of helpful. But then this last year we had a newer block that really just, we, we kept going through pulling leaves and trying to really open up and it kept filling back in and we just kind of let it do its thing. Well, harvest came around. We ended up for us, a normal quantity, I would say would be like three to 3.5 tons to the acre with that would be something we could probably ripen with, you know, predictability. This came in at seven tons of the acre, which we did not expect. Um, it was so, the canopy was so dense that you couldn't properly evaluate it. And we were a little afraid when that came in. We're like, oh my gosh, I don't know if this is going to work. And then we started running the chemistry and it was perfect. It was exactly what we were hoping for. And then fermentation, everything we would want to drum out of, Sauvignon Blanc was coming through. So I would say we need to dial down the vigor, but there's a chance it could be wrong. It could just be vintage. Um, but it's one of those varieties. The fun part about it is that there's really only a few people growing it to scale. Up. In fact, we're the biggest in terms of quantity of producers. So do you find um, there's lots of vintage variation or is it still too early to tell? No, no, there's huge. That That's been the one thing um that's probably the most difficult part about growing grapes here more so than anything actually making wine here is vintage variation um i mean i haven't occasionally you see a, vin a vintage that reminds you of another one the variation from year to year is so extreme compared to other regions we can still really make interesting wines pretty much any season but that really has to become part of the story is the vintage uh, because they differ so wildly. You know, hopefully in the end, we can have enough influence on the winemaking and then on the growing side that we can start to create consistency. But the vintage is very so much that, yeah, you, you really have a hard time comparing one to another. How do you deal with that? stress <laughs> just to stress out a lot <laughs> a little bit of panic honestly it's one of those things where it just takes time and it takes experience we're a young enough industry that we're still learning on the grape growing side luckily we have really good partnerships with you know people like michigan state university and other universities are doing a lot of research and so we can keep refining what we're doing in order to get the most control possible um but Overall, it really does take, I would say, as a winemaker, a minimum of you know 10 years before you really start having enough tricks up your sleeve and uh, enough instincts to deal with every single weird quirk that a vintage can throw you. In all honesty, you kind of have to get to a point where you accept the fact that you're never going to truly make a wine that you initially set out to create. 
what you're going to do is make the best decisions possible to try to make the best wine possible with what you're given. You can't sit here and be dogmatic and say, this is how I make wine and this is what I am. You know, the wine can never be about you. It's you have to accept the fact that you're, you have to be flexible. You have to be able to improvise and have at least 10 backup plans ready. Now we've got two um, Austrian grape varieties. So I was quite surprised, as I mentioned, by the range of grape varieties and wines um, made. Uh, so we've kind of gone to Alsace and to Loire, now we're going to Austria. Uh, to tell me about Grüneveltliner, which you say is um, booming. Yeah, Gruner is, it's funny. We've, we've had a lot of success with Gruner. More on sort of like, you know, reviews and then, and, and and competitions, but from my perspective, it's it's one of the varieties that frustrates me the most, um, and that's actually mostly in the vineyard because uh, Gruner just has its own mind of what it wants to do, um, and it's really hard to get it under control. It's very it's it's really vigorous. The clusters are extremely uneven, and it wants to crop really heavily. And so you try to kind of constantly work it, force it into your direction you're never really fully going to be able to. And so you're just kind of hoping you have some control in the vineyard because the, the wine really isn't all that difficult to make, but growing it is is probably one of the most difficult to really arrive at a point that you're really happy with. Um, I've talked to people who basically say the only way you're going to be happy with Gruner is if you grow it like a red one. Um, if you crop it like one, if you expose it like one, um, we haven't gotten to that point, but the thing I kind of realized and started to embrace is just, you know, if, if we treat it kind of more like a, more kind of like we do our Sauvignon Blanc where we embrace some of the, the quirky characteristics that it can have, then we're at least going to have a much easier time. I know, I know that there are regions where, you know, they would look down upon say like the, the, the cracked white pepper and the, and the lemon characteristics of a Gruner saying, well, that's just underripe Gruner. Um, it is, but it's something that we can, we can actually work with and make an interesting characteristic. But yeah, I mean, what we really strive to do is kind of create more depth than that. Cause I think that's generally speaking in this region, the, the biggest characteristics that you get is is that sort of like lemon and white pepper so we try to move past that and see what else we can drum out of it so all these three white wines that I've tried are very um acid driven without being too searing mm-hmm. and there's no use of oak it's very pure style is that yeah. typical of michigan in general styles of white wine? yeah it, especially of the northwest region um we have two major peninsulas here we have leelanau peninsula and right next to us is a skinny peninsula called old mission um very similar in terms of growing conditions um our, our biggest thing is that we we try to strive for well-structured acids what i do find is that Things like oak don't always work well for building body in those scenarios. You know, trying to trying to put something like that into a barrel ends up being more like a, like a kid wearing his his dad's suit jacket. It's it's incredibly awkward. It just doesn't work, and it's obvious. Um, and so I think with us, we have to identify what makes us us. And you know, obviously, strength is our acid. You know, it could be a weakness at times as well. 
so we just try to achieve as much balance as we can where it's not offensively searing, where that acid isn't just thin and lean, where it actually has structure. And, you know, I mean, that's where we also just champion, you know, food pairing, trying to get people really interested in that aspect. Because one thing we'll never be is overblown. We're not going to be just sort of like structureless and we're not going to be overripe. So, you know, our, our sort of, yeah, thing that we, we hang our hat on is sort of the interesting food pairings that can be done with our wines. Is there a good food scene in Michigan? Uh, it, regionally, yeah, um, there is. Uh, you know, here there is. Uh, actually, there's some really talented chefs in the region um, and, and all sorts of different, you know, styles and types. And I, I think that's just, we find that in these areas that have a, high, a heavy ag influence, it's, it's really sort of embracing, you know, both like, unique restaurants, bringing in talented chefs, and then you have the other end of things, which is going to be, you know, the big boom in both wineries, breweries, distilleries, trying to focus on products that are from local ag. So it, it's it's definitely grown a lot. Are wineries allowed to have restaurants? Uh, a lot of times that comes down to a township regulation, uh, as far as I know, yeah. Um, there's a lot of strange township regulations. Usually fine, though, at least in this region, it's pretty rare. I think uh, one risky business is usually about as much as uh, most of these owners want. So, I mean, more often than not, this is like, it's not necessarily the, the primary business for some owners. For some, it is, and they, they want to hedge their bets. Um, you know, the problem with the one problem with the area is just simply the winter, and there's such fluctuation in, in population. So, you know, we, we try to really encourage more and more people to visit during the winter because it is actually still a beautiful area, but let's face it, it's, it's winter. I, I'd like to be somewhere warm too. Okay, so let's so. move on to um, the Blaufränkisch. So red wine. Again, I was quite surprised to find Blaufränkisch planted in Michigan. Uh, can you talk about Blaufränkisch? Yeah, Blau has become one of those things, obviously, hearkening back to Lemberger. Um, there was only a few people who were really growing it in the early 2000s, very small plantings, and that was back when they were actually referring to it as Lemberger. Part of the challenge, like a wine like a Wurzstraminer, is honestly just the marketing, getting people comfortable with the concept of you may not know how to pronounce them. Believe it or not, it was actually a struggle, I would say, for a good 10 years until really the general overall wine culture sort of built up in popularity uh, regionally. So people became more and more comfortable with it, more comfortable with the concept then that it is not your typical red wine. It's not this big giant beast that has like these tannins that need to age 10 years. The fruit profile is completely different, especially on Blau. Blau has one of the most unique fruit profiles that of, of reds that we grow. The nice thing about it is that it, it grows so beautifully. I Blau to me is one of those wines where I like it, but I'm I'm more of a challenge-oriented person. So for me, it's it's actually really easy to grow, and it's fairly easy to make. Um, we don't need to have too much extreme intervention to get it to go where we want it to go. Um, it ripens well where we are. Uh, it has really interesting characteristics, even when it's not super ripe. It's still really fun to work with, and when it is ripe, it's it's uh, an, a nice pretty lush thing that we can pair with just about anything so it's it, yeah it's just one of those varieties i mean there's even some zweigelt in the area i mean you look at austria and you're 
Yeah. That was sort of the thought. You know, back in back around 2010, there was a major push to try to get more and more varieties into the region. And so we had a partnership with the university that was basically saying, let's do a variety trial. Let's see in other areas that are somewhat similar, similar in terms of climate, what will work. And so they started planning things like, you know, Tokai Triulano, um, Mueller, um, you know, Gruner, and uh, Blau, uh, just things that, and Zweigelt things that they thought, you know, might work. And that's kind of when people really started warming up to them and figuring, you know, let's go ahead and try this on a bigger scale. Um, for instance, I actually just, we just started planting Alvarino three years ago. And surprisingly, it is ecstatic to grow here. I, uh, you know, I, I thought we'd take a little bit of a risk, but frankly, it has been really successfully growing. Um, it has seemed to enjoy our climate. I'm, I've been really happy with the, the fruit and fruit chemistry and development so far. So, you know, I, we are definitely at a point, I think we're pretty close to being done with uh, crazy experimentation. I think we, we just, now it's like when we do something, it's based upon experience, based upon like, we know what we do well, like, you know, let's, Let's pick something that can, you know, survive our winters, that can give us interesting, you know, white wine characteristics or red wine characteristics, uh, something that's not too far outside the realm of what we can do. We're not going to try to say, well, we can grow fantastic Absov. I know we can't, and I'm okay with that, you know, and we're not going to try to be like other regions. We're not going to sit out there and tout, you know, left bank, right bank. We're going to be sitting here touting, we are here, you know, place, time, this is important. This is what we are. So yeah, I mean, to us, it's it's one of those things where it's taken us a long time to to identify what our strengths are. But you know, hopefully, we're starting to hone in on that. I'm very okay with you not uh, making Cabernet Sauvignon. I don't think the world needs any more. But what it does need more of is sparkling wine. So I did try two the Good Harbor sparkling wines, and um, yeah, tell me about sparkling wine in your region. Sparkling wine. I mean, we actually have a grower, or not a grower. We have a one of the original sort of founders of the area, we, we looked to four major players. It was um, Bruce Simpson, who started our place. And then there was Larry Mobby, one of the other ones, along with Ed O'Keefe and Bertie Rink. Larry Mobby has become known as sort of like the, the bubble godfather of really the like almost Midwest, he might as well be. Um, that is all that they do is bubbling. And he decided, you know, back in the 90s that this this was going to be his focus. And it made all the sense in the world. As I was coming up in school, you know, I, I looked at that and, you know, he would come and, and speak at our, at our classes. And you realize why it made so much sense in terms of our climate, our growing conditions, um, how we can then also maximize, you know, the, our crop because of what, you know, growing bubbly allows us to do. Um, Probably the biggest change I'd say over the last few years has been not necessarily identifying that we can do bubbly and do it consistently and do it well, has been we've been trying to embrace that closed cuve, that, that you know, Charmat method, um, trying to embrace the tank fermented method as something that isn't just poor man's champing. Um, it's not just a lesser version. Um, what we've been trying to do is I've been trying to focus on that almost exclusively. We do some that is, you know, bottle fermented as well. But the one thing I 
we got to a point where we started to realize so few people actually did that process and that style. In fact, there was only one winery that did it in the state and everyone was just making base wines and sending it off to them to do the finishing process. We realized we could really have a lot more control and learn more just doing all of it ourselves. And after that, we really started to kind of hone in on the process itself. It took, it took me a while to stop being stubborn and try, you know, to stop thinking of it like, you know, like traditional sparkling. It's, it isn't champagne. It is not that style of wine. Once we got to that point, I think we really started to kind of open up the floodgates and really open up potential. Um, the biggest thing was honestly getting past the fear of varietal character, like, you know, not feeling like we have to harvest super early, um, embracing some of the fruitier qualities and, and be okay with, um, you know, not being more traditional, you know, being okay with just kind of creating a bubbly that's, you know, can appeal at a shorter aging term and appeal to a broader audience. I mean, I think being able to create a bubbly that can reach a broad audience um, because it's a lot more cost effective, honestly, is big too. So that's, that's one thing we've been really focusing on. And I would say we're still growing in terms of sparkling wine. You know, we're growing and we're mostly, we're mostly just doing the, the major varieties, the Chardonnay, Pinot Noir, you know, things like that, that are well known for being bubbly, but um, it's something that's just going to keep growing. I think I, I wouldn't be surprised to see within the next 10 years, a large bubbly focused house come up around in this area. Right. Well, thank you for sharing all the information about Michigan. I've learned a lot in a short period of time. Mm -hmm. I get the impression that <clears throat> it's kind of um, the industry is stabilizing, that it's kind of confident in itself and is ready to uh, build to the future. That's a nice point. You know, we've, we're getting to a point now where I feel like the, the, the people who have really built a, built a foundation properly, um, I feel like we're really all ready to grow. You know, this, this industry, it's, it's kind of fun where we've been at this toddler phase for so long, you know, we're starting to actually really develop. And so getting to see that all along has been really, really exciting. And so, I mean, it's just gonna boom from here on out. So yeah, it's, you know, hopefully, you know, we get to be sort of on the forefront of those early days. And how do you see the industry developing outside, outside of the state in terms of sales, actually getting Michigan wines known? We're starting to open up into more and more states. Um, you know, we're try that is actually becoming a larger and larger focus because we realize it is really hard to rely strictly on tourism, um, strictly on people just coming to see you. And so the biggest thing has been we've been having to plant aggressively, you know, farm economically to make sure that we can actually farm where it, actually, it makes sense for us to be able to produce large quantities and get it out to different states. It's going to take a while, I think, to really start to get some of the things that we feel really represent us well out to all the states. I think we're still probably five years away from that. But that's sort of the next goal so right now where there's usually just a few wines and they're, they're just rarely available. But we're starting to get into more and more states. And the more fruit we have, the more wine we can produce, the more we can get some of our foundations, uh, some of our things, just like our varieties, like our Pinot Grigio, like our Rieslings, into areas that aren't as familiar with it. 
um, we felt really good about the, the attention we've gotten in the last few years, just nationally in terms of recognition, but it's, you know, breaking through in terms of sales is a different story. So that's, that's still definitely uh, an obstacle, but we're, we're making progress for sure. And you're not too far from Canada. Is that a potential market too? It would be interesting. I, it, we haven't delved too much into that. I mean, obviously they have both Okanagan and they have the uh, Niagara Escarpment. Um, both, you know, really interesting regions. I, I, I would love to actually go to Okanagan. I've been to Niagara quite a few times. You know, they have, I mean, they have the market cornered, obviously, on ice wine. And uh, I'll let them have that. That's really cold and kind of miserable. Um, I'd rather not do that. But they make some really interesting and beautiful wines. You know, that at least would be a, a great market. I haven't I worked directly in terms of trying to cross over to that market. But, I mean, they should be fairly familiar with those styles given what's produced on the escarpment you know so you know reaching over with another cool climate climate variation that has some different qualities um it should go well obviously they have new york not too far away as well the finger lakes that's always one that i would say we get most often compared to uh in terms of regions we're, we're quite a bit different in some ways our soils are drastically different our climates are are somewhat similar, but soils are really what separate us, I think, the most when it comes to New York and us. Well, that's part of the emerging U.S. scene outside of California and the, the West Coast. Um, so it's really interesting to see how mm. these regions develop and the quality of the wines. I mean, these four wines I've tried have been really good and really impressive. So this is my introduction mm. to Michigan, and I'm sure to many of my listeners too. So um, I hope... Um, They've learned a lot and can seek out the wines in the near future. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's you know we're we're a beautiful place to visit. You know, I mean, obviously people can always look us up. It's you know it's it's one of those things that it's exciting to get into those new areas. Um, my my father actually learned grape growing in Texas, so that's one thing I've been trying to force myself mm-hmm. to learn Texas wines, which is a completely different animal altogether but yeah just trying to venture outside of what you're used to and figuring out what all these regions do and do well is always fun and exciting yeah. well thank you thank you for sharing all your knowledge yeah thank you that's fun it's nice to get out of the cellar <laughs>